maybe. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to the February 2023 edition of the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time I go inside the factory where they're building the service modules that will take astronauts to the moon. We also discover from an astronaut who's used it what the toilet is like in the Dragon spacecraft. You're becoming obsessed with toilets. Do you realise it's a top piece of investigative journalism? Good, good. And we're joined by the author of a new book on the new guys, the diverse group of astronauts NASA recruited in 1978, including Sally Ride, who became the first American woman in space. It was okay to be a woman. It was okay to be a person of colour. It was not okay to be a gay person at that time. And it was unthinkable that she would ever say anything or live that life in an open way. Well, as you know, the first Artemis launch a few months ago was a big success. And everyone's now looking forward to Artemis 2 next year. And I was in Bremen, Germany recently for a press event called Moon Media Day, which I loved. I love the title of that. And it was held at Airbus. Now, lots of people associated with the Artemis missions were there. And we'll hear from quite a few of them, I think, over the next few Space Boffins podcasts, because they included a couple of astronauts who, you never know, could be among the first European astronauts to go to the moon. But the star attractions, though, were definitely three European service modules that were all in the Airbus clean rooms at the same time. Now, these are these essential powerhouses for the Orion capsule, and it will also provide life support for any astronauts that are on board. This is what I felt when I saw them. It's a massive warehouse effectively well it's a clean room and in front of me is ESM4 the fourth European service module that Airbus is building for the European Space Agency and of course this will eventually be attached to the Orion spacecraft and go to the moon but at the moment well it's still being built this one and it's open and you can see all sorts of metal and wires and and you can really see that the engineering between it not many wires to be fair it's in quite an advanced state but what a sight and what a privilege to be able to see a european service module in the flesh the metallic flesh so to speak knowing that it's going to play such an important role in our return to the moon my name is Hagen Witte. I'm the head of the ESM assembly line for Airbus. What is in this particular cleaning room? So this building contains two out of the three stations of the ESM assembly line. So we see here the freshest model that we have behind me, which is ESM5 that recently arrived and is being now equipped to start the integration activities on the fifth model. But moreover, we have here right next to us the third European service model, which is actually this module that brings the next humans to the surface of the moon. That's incredible, isn't it? And yet at the moment it just looks like something that you 
might find in the middle of an old stereo there are so many wires <laughs> sort of it's in such a complete state of incompletion i suppose well it is not completely incomplete so yes you see a lot of wires and a lot of tubes already integrated you do not see the big tanks the big equipments integrated so where there's loads of equipments that you integrate that you don't really notice that it's being integrated in some we integrate here in bremen 22000 parts per module and then the 16 months duration we then integrate all those parts it becomes really visible that the module gets full once you have the big parts in the electronic equipment, the tanks, and then we close out everything with the radiators, which is also functionally then very important for the thermal uh, control and thermal control system of the module. In the end, it's completely full. In the end, it's completely packed. But the status here, it appears already full, but the amount of parts that's still to come is incredible. So when will this ESM be finished in terms of the work you're doing here? So when will it leave Bremen? And that's going to happen uh, in autumn this year. Um, so until then, we have to complete the integration and to complete the test campaign of that model, and then we will ship it to Kennedy Space Center to continue there the integration together with Lockheed Martin to have then, uh, in the end, a complete assembled and tested Orion spacecraft. So what percentage would you say that this um, ESM is in terms of completion before it leaves Bremen? I mean, at the moment, is it like 60%? At the moment, I'd say it's uh, like 70-ish percent completed of integration. You're missing the big parts. That's why it doesn't look as much if you compare it to the other structures, right? But, um, yeah, and we, uh, to say it completed when it leaves Bremen, I would consider like it's 90% complete when we leave Bremen. You must be very proud of the, the role that you and the team are playing here. Indeed, yes. You can imagine it's the, it, the job requires that I see more the problems than the fascination. <laughs> but it's days like these. And uh, it's when people are visiting here and I'm able to explain what we're doing that I also recognize myself how fascinating this is what we're doing here. It's really, you have to remind yourself every day and to having here today the astronauts also that potentially fly with one of these is, is truly amazing. Uh, it's, it's something unique that we're doing here. The temptation must be for some engineers to do a tiny little bit of graffiti on there or something. <laughs> do you keep an eye out for that sort of thing? I do, I do. But believe it or not, actually engineers, um, they, they do the design, they name parts after themselves. <laughs> I love it. I love. <laughs> Who can blame them? Who can blame them? Well, thank you very much indeed. Welcome. And we'll have more from that trip in the next few months. I was very jealous. I know. I was very happy. I mean, A, it was lovely to get out, sort of thing, get out of the office, get out of the the sound recording studio. Um, I think that's the issue, hasn't it, been with um, the pandemic, is that we've missed our lovely little trips, short trips to usually Easter sites in Germany or Spain or the Netherlands a lot, the uh, the Aztec one, and yeah, and, we, um, we, do, we don't get out much. No, anymore. we don't get out much. So, and a nice, you know, an Airbus, a few, you know, a couple of hundred yards away from an airport. That to me you, was like the south of France. You got some <laughs> pictures of you in a hairnet and stuff. Oh, obviously, yes. Um, actually, yeah, mm, yes, I have. I've in fact, I've got a picture with me with a hairnet with um one of Issa's new astronaut 
recruits, um, Pablo, and I can't remember his surname, but he was absolutely charming. And I, I did manage to get an interview with him and um, Alexander Gerst. So I wasn't wearing a hairnet when I interviewed him. And was he charming? He was. Yeah, they, they're always charming. Even they're though he lovely, was, he was obviously knackered. It was at the end of the day. I think he was. I was his final interview, and they, were, you know, he's still he's still great. But yeah, it was a, a brilliant day, well organised, and um, yeah, it was nice to nice be in the food. Clean. Were the dumplings? Always, <laughs> no, there weren't. Oh, actually. disappointing. Yeah, no, they're normally dumplings. dumplings. No dumplings. Mm. Not not that I I noticed, but. Um, yeah, and, and what I liked was because I've been collecting mission patches for, well, at least 10 years now, as you know, probably longer, probably about 20 years. And my big grand aim is to make the eventual retirement project in God knows how many years' time to make a big eider down, a great big quilt, which has a rocket in the middle. I've already planned it, you know, I've designed my little tableau in the middle and then squares around the corner so it's more like a traditional sort of Quaker quilt but then each square will have a mission patch on it and there on the chairs when we went to sit down before they did the sort of um, press part of it where you have all the speakers at the front before you get them individually uh, a little later on was a mission patch (laughs) For, uh, for the European Service Module, right? And I was just so excited, along with a sticker of Sean the Sheep. <laughs> because <laughs> There's not a mission patch of Sean. Uh, you know what? There might be, but um, I haven't got one yet. So maybe that's the, the, the next stage of it. So, you know, what, what, what's not to like? I got to see three spacecraft. I got to see the uh, ESM-3 that's going to return astronauts to the moon. Yeah, all in all, fantastic. And I got to meet um, quite a few people who I haven't seen in ages, including Leo Enright, who's an Irish space... Former BBC uh, correspondent. Yeah, a correspondent, does news, but is also really well known, particularly in Ireland and um, Europe, for his um, love of space and space commentary. So he's promised to come on the podcast. So I managed to sort of nab him and say, come on, come on. So looking forward to speaking to him. Do I mean stage. BBC? Do I mean ITV? No, it's BBC. Yeah. Well, it's BBC. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's showbiz, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, one of the astronauts who's hoping he might get to the moon is ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer. He's currently working on developing a lunar simulation facility at the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne after returning in May from a six-month mission to the International Space Station called Cosmic Kiss. Now, Matthias very kindly took time out of his schedule to talk to Space Boffins, and I began our conversation by asking him what it was like to launch to the ISS in the Dragon spacecraft. The SpaceX Dragon capsule is very modern. It's very spacey and uh, so you feel like almost like flying in a business class. The chair is very comfortable. You have another room and, and all these tiny areas like in the Soyuz or even in the Shenzhou where you need to bend your knees very sharply and it's unpleasant and uncomfortable and you, you suffer through the launch and the first few hours. So that's a big improvement in, in the Dragon. The Dragon is fully automated, so the ground programmed the capsule and the ground can upload new uh, program parts in case that we have a new flight maneuver upcoming. So there's very little action for me to do. That means I had to study less than my colleagues who studied flying in the Soyuz, and uh, I had no active role. I'm almost like a passenger 
in the Dragon, while in the Soyuz, every of the three cosmonauts or astronauts has a role. I mean, there is the left-seater who is the co-pilot and the right-seater who has not so much to do, but nevertheless, he is important because you need to throw some switches and activate some pumps. For me, that was not the case, so I could absolutely enjoy the write-up and I enjoyed it so much. It sounds incredible. It looks it looks incredible. And you've got big windows down at the Earth as well. Yeah, so the, the Dragon has two big windows, um, not four. Like uh, in the beginning, we all believed there were four windows, but the, the two other cutouts that were initially foreseen to have, like window number three and four, are solid filled with a metal sheet. But once we launch and we're in space, we doff our spacesuits and we put it behind the, the seats, and then we have quite a large volume so you can float there easily with four persons and so we had a an uphill ride of roughly 24 hours to the station so we had eight hours of sleep and it's easy that everyone finds his spot i mean in zero gravity you can sleep below the seat or above the seat or just like upside down whatever you prefer a very very comfortable ride uphill can I just ask a question about the dragon? Because yes. it's not in the publicity. Where's the toilet? So the toilet is right above the side hatch. You know the, the, the hatch that we use to climb in on the launch pad? And that hatch that we also use to step out again after splashdown and landing? This hatch remains always closed in flight. Uh, and docking on the station... We use the forward hatch, which is a round one, and the, the side hatch is more like the, the squared or rectangular one. And um, the toilet is right above this rectangular side hatch behind a panel. So you need to open a panel. It almost looks like a storage location. And in there, there is a small cylinder that you can fold forward, and that is your toilet chair. So you can hold yourself onto it and, and do your heavy-duty work. There's also a tube in there, which almost look, looks like a, um, a handheld shower. And that one has a uh, funnel at the end, and that is uh, used for the, the liquid duty that you want to perform. And obviously, to guarantee some privacy, we have a privacy curtain that usually is folded away. And only in flight, we deploy it, we put it up, and then you basically float uh, under the roof of the capsule, do your job, and your colleagues are yeah, around one meter away from you in the seats. <laughs> so they're sort of singing or something like yeah, that. Kind of, I mean, kind you of. have the fans <laughs> running. Um, and um, whenever you do the, the, the peeing or like the other job, there's an additional fan that comes on that sucks everything in. So you have some background noise. It's almost like, you know, the, the modern Japanese toilets where you can activate the sound to feel more comfortable and feel more relaxed. <laughs> so I won't ask you any more questions about the toilet, but it was intri- I was intrigued by it. It is, and, 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 and you know, you know, like the other capsule, like the Starliner, it doesn't have a toilet. Wow. That was not part of the requirements. So that's back to the almost the Apollo days where you're, you know, you're talking about bags and, and, um, and having to deal with waste that way. Exactly. Yeah, you have diapers. So you did get the the business class option. Why the name Cosmic Kiss for your mission? And, and what did that sort of involve once you're on the space station? When people ask me, why do we need to fly to space? Um, nowadays, we always need to justify, especially here in Europe, we need to justify our space activities. And we say, 
every euro, every pound sterling that we invest in space, it has a return of investment of four to nine for several space activities that we have. Uh, a little bit less for human spaceflight. But I find this, maybe it's correct, but I don't find this very appealing. I think most people want to fly to space because simply because it is there, because we are explorers. We want to understand what's out there. We have a passion to find out what's behind the unknown. We want to explore space. And Cosmic Kiss is an expression of this, of this love that we have for space. So my mission is a declaration of love to space. I think you're absolutely right, because I think it's, it's very difficult to put the money on that aspect of it. But it's absolutely true, because the reason we do it is the inspiration, the aspiration. It is what humans do, and that almost should be enough, shouldn't it, as, a, as an argument yes. for why we should go up and why we should be doing these things. Exactly. And it is enough in, in other countries, in the US, in Russia, um, in China. No astronaut needs to uh, come up to stage and say, like, I, I justify now why we go to space. It's The government says it's a national objective to fly to space uh, we want to do these things now I, I probably should rip up my across through my next question because <laughs> my next question was are the experiments on the iss starting to pay off but i mean that in terms of the science because it was you know originally pitched as this scientific laboratory and it's it's there's been years of construction we've you know there's a lot of maintenance involved but do you do you feel this this there's a there's sufficient science being done now because i know you spend a lot of your time on the station doing experiments yeah it's uh, not even a lot of time as i would say we were absolutely busy from 7 30 in the morning till 7 30 in the evening just we had such a compact schedule there were several days when I had to re remind myself, uh, Matthias, you're in space. Have a look out of the window. We haven't <laughs> had looked out of the window today yet. So um, I was in space during the uh, corona pandemic. And so one of the experiments I had up there was new materials experiments. So these new materials were structured by a laser treatment on the surface. And by doing so, they became antimicrobial. So the application is immediately applicable. Imagine you're in a hospital. I'm a sick person. I enter um, a door that you will enter five minutes after me. I leave my um, viruses, my bacteria on the door handle and I pass it on to you. You, without knowing that I touched it, that I uh, left my infectious uh, residuals up there on the door handle. So if you produce a door handle with this new laser-treated material, then my germs, my microbes are killed even with you knowing it and you're safe. So this technology could be applied everywhere in the public area, in elevators where we have the buttons that everyone touches, where we have door handles, handrails, everything that is very often used and where we pass on germs from one person to the other. It's also used now, well, at least it's being studied, for implants that are going to be used um, on heart surgery of children. There is still a, a significant number of children born every year with a massive heart defect. And so they need heart surgery, they need implants to guarantee their, their life. And this treatment is one of the potential solutions that's being studied at the moment to improve the quality of these implants. 
The second topic is climate change. It's such an important topic that we uh, need to tackle, that we need to find solutions. So looking at our environment, we see a lot of buildings that are made out of concrete. So concrete worldwide produces more CO2, carbon dioxide, which is a climate-changing um, gas, than the entire aviation and rocket industry. So looking at this material and how to improve it, and that's exactly what we did in space. I mixed several concrete mixtures, more than 54, 56, I believe, um, mixtures that I did up there in space will hopefully help us to understand all the fundamental physics that is going on when uh, concrete hardens and to find out the ideal mixture that releases less CO2, that is stronger so that we can use less material and even then uh, save again CO2. That will be a mass, uh, hopefully a massive contribution in this climate-relevant topic. Well, I think you've answered the justification question next time you you have to do that. But what do they actually come back to that? You know, you've got to remind yourself to look out of the, the window. What are the memories that are seared on on your mind from, from doing that, from whether it's a glance out of the window or whether it's actually, you know, sitting and, and having that opportunity to float and, and look down at the earth? Yeah, so the Western segment that we um, spend most of our time in doesn't really have a lot of windows. So there are small windows in Node 2 and Node 1. So during the day when you're busy, you kind of forget that there's a planet Earth below you. So uh, you, you need to remind yourself that, okay, let's float over to Cupola, which is a little bit down the hall and then to the right and then again a little bit down. Uh, and there you have this beautiful window that gives you almost a 360-degree view out of the station and down down to planet Earth. And these were the best moments of my time in space, just floating over there whenever I had a little bit of time or in the evening when we were already done with our evening planning conference, we had our dinner and just then enjoying the peaceful situation, like the peaceful uh, moments of looking down and observing all the details of our beautiful planet. Coming back then to Earth, coming down for a, a splashdown, what's that like? Because I've spoken to Apollo astronauts about this, but it's, it's kind of strange to talk to an astronaut now who, who's done it, you know, because we're back in the splashdown business. Yeah, so the ride through the atmosphere is actually what um, was like more fascinating than the final splashdown in, in the water. So um, at an altitude of 130 kilometers, 120 kilometers, you feel and you see it already on, on the panels that the gravity slowly starts up building. At the beginning, it's zero um, decimal zero one G, and, and it's like, okay, uh, gravity has us again. You look outside of the window, you see the plasma that you're flying through. Um, it has a, a rose orange type color and the heat shield pieces of it burn away and, and you see the sparks flying in front of, of the window and uh, we had a night landing so everything out there was completely dark and, and you just could see the, the glow of this plasma light and it's a very mystical light very I would say like a very unreal um, environment that you're going through and the more the, the G's pulled up the denser the atmosphere became and the more you could also hear again and the deeper we entered into the atmosphere, the stronger was the roaring. And at the end, it was really like a bizarre sound 
like like almost like falling down the throat of a of a beast. I was a quite rough ride. We had some um, sharp maneuvers. So when they um, turned around the capsule to change the point where we have the strongest impact of the load, uh, of the heat load, and then the parachutes came out and and like these sudden peaks in the G load, and and then we were swung around. Um, almost like in a roller coaster. I was really, really rough and impressive. And below the parachute then, that time was so peaceful and quiet that I almost like felt like, all right, we have arrived. I, I didn't realize that we were still falling. It was so smooth. The impact in the water, it looked rough, but I believe it was around 26, 28 kilometers per hour. So you realize it, but it's nothing as hard as it looks like. And is that uncomfortable once... I mean, it's a spacecraft. It's not a watercraft. <laughs> it is a wobbly. It's a wobbly situation on the water. Uh, luckily, we had um, no rough waves. Our capsule splashed down and tilted forward and backward and forward again. Uh, so that was a bit rougher than for most other Dragon landings so far. But it was absolutely feasible. And we had the support boat right next to us. They pulled us uh, out of the water and onto the boat within, I believe, 45 minutes. Um, so that was all very, very convenient. So uh, I was impressed how well the company already managed all this stuff. See, you make it sound like a thrill ride. To me, it just sounds like the most terrifying thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, is, it is the roughest part of the entire space adventure. I mean, the launch up on the rocket, it gives you the same G-loads, it gives you the acceleration, but it's all in one direction. Um, coming down, it's uh, yeah, it's like a roller coaster ride. It's the roughest bit. Oh, and what are your plans now? What's your what are you working on? What are you hoping to to be doing? So now I'm in the post-flight phase, which is roughly six months after the mission uh, that already comes now to an end. And I'm back in the team. Um, let me say the entire team that is not assigned to a flight. We have a standardized training, we call it pre-assignment training. Um, we also are in charge of several projects, and my project will be the new lunar facility, so the, the moon technology training facility that we are about to set up here at the Astronaut Center. And hopefully in, in a few years, I will get my second flight. But will it be to the moon? East astronaut Matthias Maurer uh, had the most anoraki day probably i've ever had one of the most i have mean, had a few well, you know there is a top 10 um with matthias um when i used to do the commentaries for the european space agency and i was doing a commentary with him in moscow when we could still go to moscow um we spent most of the day in space museum in moscow one of the two space museums fab- fabulous space museums and I mean, you know, I like a space museum. Um, don't we all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He really likes a space museum. <laughs> so I went round and I got, got to the end and I thought, oh, I wonder where, wonder where he is. And I had sort of retraced my steps practically back at the beginning <laughs> because he was reading every single little thing. He was looking at every oh, single brilliant. item in the museum he was absolutely obsessed with with space and then in the evening we went to a bar where the beer was delivered to your table by train there's a little model train model. Went, the model train that went round the bar um, apparently it's not there anymore oh, um so yeah most anoraki day ever brilliant and it's Matthias nice in it, it's nice also to 
that, you know, we've had a, got him on a podcast speaking after he's gone into space because a few years ago, I interviewed him at the, when he was just literally just finishing his training at the centre in, in Cologne. So he hadn't gone up yet and he, you know, had a bit of a wait. So, and he was a great interviewee then. And like most of the astronauts, you know, you come away feeling less, a lesser human being. Yeah, well, but he's he actually... Was just so, they're all so nice and he was just great. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're almost exactly the same age. So I feel such an underachiever. He is lovely. And actually what's interesting about him, he wasn't originally selected as one of the astronauts. He was like one of the backup ones. Oh, I didn't which, know that. Which bodes well. So he's the same group as mm. the Tim Peake, Samantha Christopheretti, that, that I group. do remember him being... Yes, yeah. it would be a but while he, he for was, him. Yeah. He wasn't ah. selected initially, but he was selected afterwards, which which is quite uh, heartening for those astronauts that are that aren't in the sort of top league of the oh, selection yes, because yeah. there are this sort of backup group of astronauts. So, you know, if if and when start these somebody accidentally to the moon, gets food poisoning <laughs> from a sandwich you happen to give them. You, if that, it happens. Yes. So there's, there is kind of a backup core at Easter on the new selection. And so, you know, he's an illustration that they might well get to fly yeah, into absolutely. space. absolutely. Good on my ties. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch via social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and uh, Instagram. Not much. We'll put some pictures up of my recent trip to Germany um, to see the European service modules. I could only take a photo of ESM four not esm5 or three but um they did give us a, a quite a few pictures on the press on the presumably press they look anyway. the same don't they i uh, know they were in different stages of undress mm. shall we say you know they're all exposed sorry this sounds very sexual i didn't mean to say right. but they were they were all ex- their innards were exposed now i'm going medical their innards were exposed and the more recent one was four was looking quite silver and lots of tubes and everything neat and tidy and it was just sort of waiting to be um have the the, the it was about 80 percent, 70 80 percent complete whereas esm3 actually i've just written about it for um bbc future and i've said it looked like the inside of a 1970s stereo it was just full of like colored wires <laughs> sort of coming out of it everywhere so yeah so they were all in in very different um stages it's phenomenal though i mean it's an assembly line it is an, an assembly yeah. line of spacecraft yeah, that it's, are going to the moon it's a it's a it's europeans moon moon factory no, it's brilliant it's, it's yeah. very very cool until 1983 Every American in space had been white and male. But in 1976, NASA began recruiting for a new kind of astronaut. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols. But I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. Well, the space shuttle astronauts selected in 1978 included women, 
African-Americans and an Asian-American. The group was known as the 35 New Guys, and there's a new book out about them called The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. Its author is Meredith Bagby. I asked her how some of the other astronauts saw this new group. Prior to 1978, NASA had only hired military test pilots, rocket jockeys, as they called them. And that was the type of person that was uh, described in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. And when they saw these civilians coming in, they really thought that they were not going to cut it. The test pilots were people who had fought in Vietnam and faced life and death every single day. And the civilians were people who had protested Vietnam and were doing getting their PhDs in you know very safe classrooms. What was great about this class is that every single one did make it. Everybody flew into space. Nobody was a dropout. And the, the program was like a total success. What about the wider American public? I mean, were they were they ready for this? Well, I mean, was the, I suppose it's difficult to look back so far, but was it? A brave move by NASA at that point when the perception of astronauts was, as, as you suggest, like that sort of right stuff type attitude. Mm-hmm. You hear, still hear that today, don't you, that astronauts have the right stuff? Mm-hmm. You still have that today. I think that the there was a, gr- a tremendous pushback both at NASA and in the public for um, astronauts of color and for women astronauts. And throughout the 60s, NASA rejected the idea of having female astronauts. Jerry Cobb, the Mercury 13, they all tried. They they sort of proved that they could do all the same tests that the Mercury 7 could do, but they weren't allowed in the program. So there was a big you know, a big pushback from NASA. And what ultimately happened was in 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act, and it became law uh, that, you know, people could not be discriminated against based on their um, sex or their, you know, the color of their skin. So NASA was forced to do it. And Congress forced them to do it. They didn't want to do it. But so it wasn't a choice at this point uh, in 1978. They had to. And so did that attitude within NASA change quite quickly once this group was selected because you you look at there's a there's a picture of all of them uh you can see on the on the nasa website and actually it's not far off the sort of class of astronauts that you might select now i mean there are more women now but actually i mean for the time this is pretty radical stuff yeah, it was really radical stuff. And I really applaud NASA for, you know, they resisted it. And then, but then once it was mandated that they had to do it, they integrated the program extremely well. And I talked to all the new guys and none of them reported any difficulty because of gender or because of um, race. So I think they did an extraordinary job. I mean, there was teasing and there were weird things that happened about like astronaut or about engineers not knowing about women's bodies and how they might function in space. But there was no; it didn't seem like there was any cruelty. Uh, let's talk about that then. So NASA, predominantly male organization, what would they think? What What are they getting wrong? They had a, a lot of funny ideas about what women might be like in space. In particular, Kathy Sullivan says she, he's like, they would go absolutely crazy at the thought of that women might menstruate in space and in the toiletry. So Sally Red was our, our first American astronaut. And when she went up, they, they put together a toiletry bag and inside the toiletry bag, 
they put makeup and lipstick and she's like, I don't even wear lipstick on, on the planet, but okay. And then they gave her a hundred tampons all strung together with a string and a pair of scissors. So they wouldn't float, the tampons wouldn't float away. And she's like, you know, and she, she, when she asked them, what is this? They said, was, well, these are tampons. We thought you needed a hundred, about a hundred in space. She's like, no, that's, that's too many. <laughs> What was the thinking in in Sally Ride being the first woman? I mean, was there quite a lot of there must have been competition for that for that place, whether it was spoken of or not. Oh yes, there was, and we did we do about a you know about a chapter and a half in the book about the competition for both first female in space, for first American woman in space, and first African American in space. Everybody realized there were six women who were in that class, and those six women realized one of them would be the first, and that of course would be a moment for the history books, and that would be a lifetime of being the first American woman in space. It was a big, really big deal. So, what was interesting about the process at NASA and is still kind of true is that the um, director of flight operations, who at the time was George Abbey, makes the decision. It's one guy making the call, and it's a really secretive process, and nobody knew who was ahead and who was behind. And everybody, you know, tore their hair out trying to figure out where they were in the lineup. Of course, Sally ended up getting it. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that is. But George was the one who made the decision. So you don't know, even. Well, the big theory, and I think it it bears out pretty well in terms of the research we did, was that um, there's there's certain technology on the shuttle that was really important. One of them was the robotic arm. And operating the robotic arm was uh, going to be one of the early flights. And it required a high level of um, hand-eye coordination. And Sally uh, was a terrific tennis player. And she had this incredible skill. And she was very dedicated to learning the robotic arm. And so the way the theory goes is because she was the best at that technology, she was the one that was chosen. Uh, let's talk then about the um, first African-Americans uh, in space. So we know Guy Blueford was the, the first uh, to actually fly in space. But it's an extraordinary story of Ron McNair growing up uh, in segregated South Carolina in, in the 1950s. I mean, it's just... It, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, for me of, you know, being slightly younger, but also being in the UK to just understand that and to go from this awful segregation in, in the fifties to flying in the space shuttle. It's true. I mean, his life is extraordinary and the, the span of history that he experiences extraordinary. So that, that's absolutely right. When he was a young man, he was a farmhand, uh, with his brother and they would, you know, they were trying to make ends meet. They didn't have a lot of money. And, um, after school and on holidays, he and his brother used to sit on, on the side of the road and jump in the back of a, <laughs> of a truck and go farm. And of course, this was the motive, one of the motivations for him for getting out um, and educating himself as he didn't want to be that, you know, he didn't want to have his body be a farmer and have to and, and, and suffer under, under those circumstances. So he studied really hard. He became valedictorian. He went on to college and eventually earned his PhD at MIT, which was extraordinary at the time, and then kept surprising people and joined the astronaut corps. So um, yeah, his life was absolutely extraordinary. And um, he was really fun to write about. You talk about this this incident when he was a child in the in the library. Just tell tell us about that. So where he lived in um, South Carolina was a segregated community, and it was a whites only library. 
he really wanted to learn math and he didn't have any books. And so he went to the library to get books on math and um, his mother was a teacher. And so she always stressed education in their family. And when he tried to check out, the librarian, you know, pointed to the sign and said, there are no blacks allowed here. And he said, I just want to check out the books. So he had a standoff as a very young child with a librarian who then called the police, called his mother. And of course, the police came and instead of dragging him out, they said, let him take the books. And then after that, that library was available to all people, which was great. And they renamed that library after him, actually, after he became an astronaut. That's phenomenal. I want to talk a bit more about about Sally Ride, but I mean, as we're talking about um, Ron McNair, there was really a, there's a tragedy, isn't there, at the heart of this story, is that both he and Judy Resnick lose their lives in the in the in the Challenger disaster. I mean, That's right. You know, it's um, it, and it, it is because they they were just doing so well. You know, I was a child of the '80s. I saw actually the Challenger explode as a kid. I was on a field in Florida watching it, and you know, I learned as an adult that four members of this class died in the Challenger, which was extraordinary loss for this class. Um, as you mentioned, Judy Resnick, who was the second uh, woman uh, from America in space, uh, Ron McNair who is the second African-American in space, and Ellis and Onizuko, who is the first Asian-American uh, in space. And, of course, Dick Scobie was the pilot, so um, or the commander. So this class really suffered quite substantially and then had to come back from that. They didn't fly for two years. Sally was tasked with investigating what happened in Challenger. So they were instrumental in kind of unraveling the what had happened, what the mistake was, and really holding NASA and the administrators accountable. And re-reading that story, I mean, yes, I, I remember it as well. I wasn't, in, I wasn't, you know, to witness it must be extraordinary. But uh, just reading every time I read it, you know, it's still just it's a heartbreaking story, particularly all the children across the, the country watching that that flight because of Kristen mm-hmm. uh, McAuliffe on board. There was an assumption, wasn't there, at that point, and I guess there was in the selection as well, that shuttle flights were going to be routine. And up to that point, I was looking at the timeline – Sally Ride and uh, Guy Blueford flew within a couple of months of each other. You know, it's just, you know, they were just so, so many shuttle flights. Mm -hmm. The shuttle was a hugely ambitious program. And the shuttle itself was very ambitious. It was the largest spacecraft ever created. It was the most complex vehicle ever created. And with that complexity, unfortunately, came a lot of risk, too. And so even though they were flying that rapidly, they were having lots of technical issues along the way, and they were bootstrapping the whole program together. And the new guys really had, they were on the on the ground floor of that program, and it was much more of a startup, and that vehicle was much more of a test vehicle than we realized. It looked like an airplane, but it certainly didn't function like one. <laughs> Do you think they they appreciated just what they were let themselves in for that that actually there wasn't it wasn't routine it it wasn't a like you say like an aircraft i think they had no idea i talked to anna fisher and i said did you know what the you you got there you know on their first day did you know what the shuttle was and she's like no i she's i sort of saw a picture of it but i had no she goes i didn't care what i was flying i just wanted to go to space and i think that was the the reaction of all of them they just wanted to be astronauts they didn't care what got them up it was a tin can or the shuttle and so they knew very little. Honestly, they spent the first year getting to first and second year really getting to know what the shuttle was. And I think once they understood it, they realized how complex and insane. I mean, kind of insane, kind of magical it was. And Anna Fisher's interesting because her flight, I mean, just what they did, you know, capturing satellites from orbit. 
with mm-hmm. a robotic arm. You can't do that now. You could do it then. And she did it. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. Yeah, it's really great. That flight is in particular um, really exciting because they made it up. I mean, they didn't know. First of all, Ron's flight had lost the two satellites. It wasn't their fault, but the technology didn't work. And then NASA was like, maybe we can just grab them, just go out and grab them with a, you know, it was, they were making this stuff up as they went along. And then when they sent Anna and Rick Houck, who was the commander, who's a lovely person up to try to get these satellites, it was, I mean, it was madness, but they did it. I mean, they figured it out and um, it was felt like science fiction, I think at the time. And then you have Kathy Sullivan, another one of the, the 35 new guys, part of the astronaut team that launched Hubble. Yeah. Her biography, which is a great read, is all about Hubble and it's called Handprints on Hubble. And it's all about her time with this magical, extraordinary machine. And she spent years, I mean, she and many other people spent years of their life creating this machine and figuring out how to launch it. And of course, once they did launch it, well, we know this, we know the story. One of the, the lenses didn't work, but it does now. <laughs> and, um, they fixed it, but it's an, it's an incredible story because it, Hubble, of course, gave us some of the first glimpses very deep into the universe and, and let us understand that, you know, the universe is 14 billion years old and, you know, where we live in the universe and how we, how we understand ourselves. So it was really an extraordinary telescope. I mean, there are so many stories here, and it's a, it's a great book. The way you tell it as well, I think, is really good. I'm just wondering, though, we've talked about, you know, overcoming sexism and overcoming racism in the program. I wonder about the homophobia aspect, because Sally Ride, as we know, was gay, but we didn't know at the time, and she didn't feel she was able to, to say that. And in in your book, you talk about, you know, the visits from the, the security services of screening these people beforehand and all the rest of it. And the implication was, oh, she would never talk about being gay. It does seem that that was that was a step too far for NASA. No, uh, yeah, hundred percent. You know, it was okay to be a woman. It was okay to be a person of color. It was not okay to be a gay person at that time. And it was unthinkable that she would ever say anything or live that life in an open way. And I think she realized that, um, you know, she of course married one of the other astronauts before her flight, Steve Hawley. And, um, you know, it was later in life when she had a relationship with a woman and it became more serious and she realized she had to leave NASA. I mean, that, that was the tragedy is that she, she really, understood that she couldn't be a gay person and be at NASA at the same time and that she'd have to live in secret. And in fact, when she died, she told her partner, Tam, you know, they were discussing whether or not in her obituary she would come out. And she said, you know, I don't want to hurt NASA. And she was still thinking about that at that, even at that time, which is, you know, now in the, in the 2010s. And and anyway, so she decided it would be okay. And Tam could say something, but even then she was thinking about it. Presumably that has changed now, but it's it's amazing it took so long to change. It really took a long time, and it was unthinkable. And I think, you know, my suspicion is that George Abbey knew she was gay, even when she was launching his first woman, and which is an extraordinary testament to him and an extraordinary story, but she couldn't be out. Looking back at this, I mean, did NASA, maybe deliberately or inadvertently, help to change social attitudes by having these astronauts showing these people achieving amazing things? I think they did. I think representation matters. And I think especially getting kids into STEM programs and getting kids interested in NASA and getting kids interested in science, it's important to see representations. And if they see 
a black woman or a black man or a woman uh, or an Asian person as an astronaut, I think it gives them a lot, it opens up their minds to what they can do. In retrospect, and having immersed yourself in these these stories and these people's lives, what what do you think we we owe them? I mean, does do we do does the country owe them? Does the, does the world owe them owe them something? You know, it's a sort of these thirty five people. You know, for me, what's great about this class is they really opened up modern space travel. And by modern space travel, I mean everybody can come along, and you don't have to be a military person. And um, now we're seeing a whole new generation of people go to space. And this idea that um, space is open to all of us, I think they initiated that idea. So I think in terms of what is owed, I would say just um, a recognition of knowing who they are, knowing their stories. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. Meredith Bagby, author of The New Guys. And it is a, it's a great book. It's been sent to us by the publishers from America. It's very exciting. Hefty hardback, as it is at the moment. And it's a, an imprint of um, HarperCollins, I think, isn't it? It is, but I think you just ask for the book. You don't have to, you don't <laughs> I have always, to specify the I publisher. Bit, I get a bit old-fashioned. I was thinking, need to know the publisher. You, you need don't to need to know, know the publisher or I know, anything I forget like. that we have the interweb. No. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a super book. Um, I love the way it's written. It's very dramatic. It is. I mean, and, I've and only started look at the, reading yeah, it. And if you look at the index, meticulously researched as well. She was lovely. I sort of wish I had been able to interview her with you and um, unfortunately, uh, as you know, I've been working on a documentary recently, nothing to do with space, and it's been a little bit mentally consuming. But when I started, I've read about I'm about four chapters in, and it's beautifully written. It is. It's, yeah. I love the introductions of just honing in on a couple of those, you know, a few of those astronauts, like like Mike, Mike Mullane and, and Sally Ride and Ron, Ron McNair, who, of course... You know, yeah, his background. His, when we, we, oh my goodness! So we talked yeah. about as we talked about in the interview. Yeah. Extraordinary background, uh, and I'm not going to give it away. But, uh, just in the, I think the opening first or second chapter, an extraordinary story of Judy Resnick. Absolutely, yeah. I mean well, she was I've phenomenal. Heard, I love that uh, those know. introductions are just. No, really. it's like a novel in a way. You just want to read. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm quite envious of. Uh, so that's why I wish I'd have spoken to her because just, just, yeah, very nope. in awe of that. I think she that's was going lovely. to be really popular yeah. with space fans, particularly when it um, comes out in the UK. Yeah, so I do recommend it. The New Guys, it's called by Meredith Bagby. And um, I should also mention that um, I made a documentary about this. Did not you? in the same depth. <laughs> not in the same depth, but it's lovely. It sounds lovely. I it listened is. to a bit of it. It is a lovely it documentary. It is a very nice one. Yeah, it's called uh, The Equal Rights Stuff. And you have an astronaut presenting And presented it. by Nicole Stott. Yep, which is um, great. I, I think you'll be able to hear it worldwide, but it's certainly in the UK. It's available on BBC Sounds yep, still. Yep. And so, it's definitely worth listening because it's quite a some really good interviewees on, on Some very uh, good. Yeah, some, very some, good space. Some very good. We had some a really amazing cast mm. and nice use of music. I thought when I made it as well. So yeah, it's called the Equal Rights Stuff. And Nicole Stott presents that. And that is Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency. Uh, do get in touch with uh, any thoughts, social media, anything you want. Really, you know, we don't care. <laughs> it's like life itself. It is. Yeah. Any whatever. profound thoughts? Profa- if you have a profound thought, please get in touch. We could do with some profound thoughts. We could. There. We could we're, indeed. We're desperately Otherwise, short of we'll just be thoughts. on toilets. Again. It's a very much like you know this shortage of cucumbers and tomatoes. We're desperately <laughs> thought of short, short, short of, of short profound, profound thoughts. thoughts. So uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs>